Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, um, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore... What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. The late C.S. Lewis, the author, once wrote, When I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. So today what we're doing is we're picking right back up where we left off right before Christmas in our walk through the Gospel of Mark titled Following Jesus. And the point of this series has been from the very beginning is is just that, learning to follow Christ, going where he goes, going where he says to go, where he, he leads us. Even when he leads us into difficult territory, even before he leads is, is hard. As Christ himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. These are very pointed words of Jesus. Let him deny himself, which means to deny his wants and his agenda and his, his own priorities and even his own personal feelings and make Christ and his truth and his command and his mission the priority. And then he says, pick up your cross, or in other words, be willing to suffer if required in order to follow Jesus wherever he leads. That is the call to discipleship. That is what it means to follow Christ. That you come into a right relationship with him through repentance and faith, and that you follow him where he leads because you have been supernaturally transformed by God himself, that you have been radically changed by God, and so you can now live out this radically different kind of life that he has called you to. You want to see a picture of that radically different life, then read the Sermon on the Mount. Being a Christian is about following wherever Jesus leads, even when it's difficult, even if the truth is difficult to hear, even if the truth offends the culture around us, Even if the truth hits a square in the heart and upsets us because the truth is confronting the very sin that we love, and even if the truth calls us out in the choices that we're making, following Christ, being his disciple, means going wherever he leads, no matter what. Now, why would we 
even subject ourselves to such a thing? Why would we do that? Why would we follow Christ? I mean, the fact of the matter is, as many people follow Christ because they heard someone say that if you'll follow Jesus, you'll become a better person. Some even believe that if you will follow Christ, then you'll just feel better about yourself and who you are. That if you follow Christ, that Jesus is going to solve all of your earthly problems, that you'll live a pain-free, problem-free life. Or that if you will just simply pray this prayer, then Jesus will definitely come into your heart and save you no matter what happens in the rest of your life. That, that no matter what the rest of your life looks like, that Jesus somehow has rescued you, even though now that you still continue to live like one of the demons. For many people, following Christ is, has been identified with what is called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's just a fancy theological term. It simply means this. right? If I follow Christ, I'll be a better person. That's the moralism. Right? And if I follow Christ, I'll feel better about myself. That's the therapeutic part of it. And the deism part of it is basically God is there to serve me. I can pray to Christ as my cosmic butler to serve me when I, when I need something. For many people, being a Christian is about making a profession of faith and then adopting some cultural Christian habits like occasionally you know, going to church or, or listening to K-Love Radio. I mean, who doesn't like that? It's positive and uplifting, right? Or praying a prayer once in a great while. But it's actually, right? right? But, that's, but it's not actually about following Christ's leads. So why then would we follow him? Why would we do what he says to pick up our crosses and go where he leads? Well, besides the fact that he commands us to do that, which, by the way, should be enough, is the fact that if we've been truly saved, we will want to follow him even when it gets hard. And the reason for that is simple. Those who trust in Christ have been radically transformed and have a new nature. They have been born again. That's what that expression means. And because of that, they've been radically transformed by God. They understand what it is that God has done for them. God himself, by his grace, through faith in Christ, has rescued them from their sin and the wrath of God that will come against those who remain in their sin. God has saved them. And if that were not enough by itself, God also then adopted them into his family, where once they were enemies of God, they're now his beloved children, that they can come to him without fear, calling upon him, Abba, Father. And again, if that's not enough, then God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside them, to indwell them, right? And, 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 and leading them, and strengthening them, and guiding them, and transforming them more and more in the image of Christ. And again, if that's not enough, those who trust in Christ, they live in, in the promise and the hope that one day, when either Christ returns or they take their last breath, that they will be ushered into the very presence of that almighty and living God and forever will live in unimaginable joy as they finally will now spend eternity in the up-close personal relationship with God that they were, even, they, were, they were created for. Where there is no more pain, where there is no more tears, there is no more sorrow, there is no more betrayal, there is no more sickness, there is no more depression, there is no more death anymore. All things are new. Being transformed, being born again, and living in the knowledge, and living in those promises, right, is the reason why those who are truly believers will follow Christ even when it's hard to do so. Because they know that they've been, what they've been rescued from, 
and they know the one in whom they place their hope. And the fact of the matter is, if, if you don't know Christ and who he is, if you've not been radically transformed by, by God, following Christ will absolutely not make sense to you. It will seem like the weirdest possible thing. I'm just telling you, if you don't know who Christ is, following Christ does not make any sense at all. Think about it. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, an instrument of torture and death, and follow me. In fact, much of what we will talk about in the book of Mark will not make sense to you because Mark is about learning to follow Christ all the way to the cross, no matter what the cost is. And as we've said, some of the things that Jesus teaches are really, really hard especially for those who are sympathetic to the attitudes and the values of the world and the culture around us. The attitudes and the values of the culture around us and the world around us is really there in stark contrast to many of the things that Jesus teaches. For instance, Jesus teaches that people are basically good. That is the assumption of the world around us, that people are basically good. You ask somebody, are you a good person? They will say yes. But even Christ himself says there are none good but God. And his word makes it clear that people are radically corrupted by sin. No one is good. No one is righteous. No, not one. The world teaches that all religions are true, and all religions end up leading to God. But Christ teaches that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and he says very clearly, no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. The world teaches that Jesus was simply a wonderful teacher, an enlightened man, and a perfect example of humanity. And Jesus teaches that he is not just a man, but he is God incarnate. He is the he is theanthropos, which is the which is the Greek word that means God man. He is he is God in the flesh. The world teaches that your greatest problem is that you've just not learned to be happy and accept who you are. Jesus says that your greatest problem is that you're happy with the fact that you're a sinner. And, and, And the result of that is that you've been alienated from God and you stand under his judgment. You see, the attitude of the world and culture stand in stark contrast with many of the things that Jesus teaches. And the text that we see here before us today is another very clear example of that. Let's just be honest. If there is a subject that the world at large gets twisted up over, It is this one, the subject of marriage, the subject of divorce, the subject of sexual identities. If there's a place where the culture and the world stand at odds with Christ and his word, it is right here. And as a result, there seems to be no limit of of points of view and perspectives and opinions that people have about this subject, even amongst those who profess to be believers in Christ. And And so then, right, this then is another one of those places where I have to really kind of begin this sermon and really these first few sermons with the phrase, you know I love you, right? Because for many, what Jesus is saying here is really difficult to hear. What Jesus is saying here, it is not popular with the rest of the world. What he's saying here is not popular with culture. What Jesus is saying here, rightly understood, deeply offends a great many people. So much so that many who profess to be Christians will try to take this text and kind of twist it out of context and begin to try to kind of explain it away, right? And try to take away what Christ is clearly communicating. You see, what Jesus is talking about is not simply divorce and whether or not a person has the right to get a divorce. 
He's talking about marriage and what it is and, and what it's not. He's talking about the nature of humanity being male and female and the implications of that. And his view, Christ's view of marriage and divorce, is not in alignment with popular culture at all. Not to mention, biblically speaking, marriage is a metaphor for something that is much, much greater, our relationship with, with, with God. John Piper, by the way, if there's a, a preacher that you could get used to listening to, that's, uh, that's one of many, and, 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 and books that he's written are, are, you know. But he says this, God created us in his image, male and female, with personhood and sexual passions, so that when he comes to us in this world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises and the pleasures of our covenant relationship with him through Christ. It all points to Jesus. Marriage points to this greater reality, and marriage is something much bigger than many people even imagine. And so this text before us pushes us into a subject that is simply much bigger than we can tackle in one sermon. There's just too much here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, over the, we're going to take a few weeks and we're going to unpack this, what Jesus is saying here about marriage and divorce. We're going to spend the next two to three weeks looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, so we can clearly understand what Jesus is teaching. I began this series, by the way, with the hopes that I'd be able to get through this entire book in a year. Well, we already, we already blew that out of the water, right? Okay? But, but what, 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 what I've been convicted of is there are certain places we just need to linger and let God speak to us through his word. Now, today, what we're going to do is we're going to set this conversation up. Today's message is really kind of the introduction to the entire um, conversation. So my, my hope is that you'd be here for the next few weeks so you can hear the entire thing in context. Um, we're going to set this up so that, we, so, that we, so that what we'll be looking at, right, and what we'll be talking about is we're going to be doing so from the right perspective. So that we're, so the, so we're not actually just going to dive in and talk about marriage and divorce today, right? We're not going to talk about sexuality today. What we're going to talk, we're going to talk about those things in the, in the coming weeks. What we're going to do today is, is what we need to do is we need to frame this conversation from a biblical perspective. We need to make sure as we go forward that we're seeing things from a biblical worldview. Right? And in light of that, there is really one verse in this entire text I want to address today because it's really the foundation, it's the foundation of everything else we're going to talk about. In fact, if we don't get the foundation of this conversation right, everything else that we're going to talk about is simply going to be irrelevant. Because all we're going to be left with is trying to create and defend our own opinions. If we don't get the foundation right, what we're going to do is just have our opinions to talk about this. And forgive me, I could care less about opinions. In fact, I really don't care about your opinion on this matter. And don't get offended by me saying that, because hear me, you shouldn't care about my opinion either. My opinion, my opinion on this matter is completely irrelevant. I want you to hear me, okay? My opinion is irrelevant. What matters ultimately is the truth. That is what matters. You see, we don't worship God in spirit and opinion. We worship him in spirit and in truth. What matters is the truth. So we must decide right now that we're going to be committed to go where the truth leads us. Otherwise, we're really not going to be following Christ where he leads us. We're just going to be following our own opinions. If you want to follow Christ 
and know who he is, we must be willing to seek and embrace the truth. Even if at times that truth is difficult, and believe me, there's been times it's been very difficult for me. And so with that, if we're going to get to the truth and get it right, we need to get the foundation right. And so, so turn with me again to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be getting verse 1. There, the focus is one verse here, but let me read the text in context so you can see where I'm going here. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and began and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, Why did Moses command you? What did, I mean, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to, to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And then here's our text. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This right here is the foundation of this entire conversation. The the phrase, from the beginning, God made them. Now understand there's more to the text than just that, but this is the foundation. Understand this. God made them. God created them. Both men and women. God is their creator. He made them. That is the foundation of this subject. The foundation of the subject is not the culture. The foundation of this subject is not marriage customs from different parts of the world. The foundation of this subject is not the legal system and what's permissible under the law. The foundation of this subject is not even our emotions and how we feel about it. The foundation of this subject is not even what's acceptable by society standards. Look at what Jesus says. From the beginning of creation, God made them. The foundation of this entire subject is God himself. He is the foundation of this entire conversation. And he is the one we must get right here. He is the foundation of everything else that we're going to talk about. And he must be. Why? Because he's the one who made us. He is the creator of all things, as John tells us. And all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of all life itself, every animal, every cell, every living, breathing creature. He's the creator of all things, including all of mankind. He is your creator. And as such, he is the one who created marriage. From the very beginning, he had created it. That's why Jesus appeals to creation. And so it is his institution. It is God's institution, which means he is the one who designed it. He is the one who established it. He is the one who created marriage. And as such, he is the one who gets to determine the purpose of it. He is the one who who has, has the right to say what marriage is and what marriage isn't. He is the one who has the right to say whether or not people can get a divorce. He is the one, because he made them, that determines what is right and what is good and what is sinful with respect to their sexuality. God is the one who created man. And because of that, he's the one who created marriage. And that, and and, and what, what he says about marriage and divorce, what God says supersedes everything else. We need to be really, really clear about that. It supersedes our culture, supersedes our feelings, 
man-made law. It supersedes our desires. It supersedes all things. The only view of marriage, hear me, church, the only view of marriage that ultimately matters is God's view. And if we belong to Christ, and if we truly love God, then we will want to know and to affirm and to and to submit to God's view. Because God's view is the truth, and God's view is what is right. And so as we're going to explore God's view of marriage, we're going to do that over the next couple of weeks. But before we, again, get to there, there's still a little bit more we need to do to lay this foundation for truth. As we said, God is the foundation for the truth of this issue. He's really the foundation of all truth. But, but that begs the question, what God is that? And I'm not trying to be silly here. Um, in fact, I'm being quite serious. We must really actually examine that and ask the question, what God is it that we're actually appealing to in order to understand what marriage is and what it's supposed to be? I mean, if he's the foundation, then we really need to have an understanding of who he is. Now, the thing is, is like when you ask people, they'll all say the same thing. Well, I appeal to the God of the Bible. I mean, that's what everybody says. But what does that even mean? I mean, if you were to ask the question and poll 100 different Christians and ask them to describe who God is and what makes him God, you will be absolutely astonished at the wide variety of views and perspectives about God. This is why there's so much disagreement. Even amongst evangelicals, with respect to issues like marriage and divorce and sexuality, that's why there's so many diverging opinions about this and those amongst who, those who, who say that they follow Christ. Their understanding of marriage is directly related to their understanding of who God is. And so there are many different views of God, even amongst those, again, who say and profess to be Christians. And like I said, every one of them will say the same thing, that their view of God is based on the Bible. Everybody says that, even the heretics. So what does that mean? Well, this right here is the reason why we at First Baptist Church started a theology class, is we want you to, to really be able to know who God is. As we said, to love God is to know him and vice versa. Because the fact is, if you're really going to understand this issue, we need to take the time to be very clear about who God is that created all things, including marriage, in the first place. And so my, my goal this morning is to help with that. And so then turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 6. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Isaiah chapter 6 is in the Old Testament. And if you find the book of Psalms, then turn a little bit forward, and you'll find Proverbs. And after Proverbs, you'll find Ecclesiastes. And after Ecclesiastes, you'll find this, the Song of Solomon. And Isaiah is right after that. Now, if you get to Jeremiah, you went too far, back up a little bit, and you'll be right there. And I know that, so we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6, and I realize this is a text I've been, been referring to and we've been coming back to quite often, even in the youth group, but it's really a stunning and important text, and I believe this text helps to paint a picture of who God is, right? Uh, and, and I think that's important to our understanding of everything else. So, again, Isaiah, chapter number 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, (laughs) there is more to unpack in this particular text than I can possibly even deal with in the time that we have left. In fact, we addressed a lot of these things in our foundational theology class that we began last week. And if you missed that class, by the way... Um, there's still hope for you. Uh, we've actually taken and, and, and video recorded it, and we've uploaded it to YouTube so you can listen to it or you can watch it at, at your leisure. If you want the notes, let me know. I'll email them to you. But, uh, but, but there's some critical things that we need to see in this text that's important for our purposes today. You see, Isaiah is describing a vision of God that he sees, and what he sees is the glorious spectacle of what true worship of God looks like. And I want you to notice the imagery. We, he says he sees the train of his robes. Um, that they filled the temple. Now, there's a lot of symbolism there, right? But, but just to simplify this idea of this train of his robes, you know, when we think about kings and we think about their long robes, what does that point to? It points to their majesty and their glory. This, this is literally a symbol of God's glory. In fact, the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament that Jesus would have, been, would have read, would have said that the temple was full of his glory, What Isaiah is saying is that God's glory filled up every square inch of the temple. God's glory was everywhere. And even the seraphim exclaim that the whole earth is filled full of his glory. And then Isaiah also said that he saw God high on an exalted throne. Clearly he is is seeing God as the sovereign reigning king. King Uzziah just died, but the one king that will never die is the one he now is sees, and that this God, this king, is the one who's in control. And then notice he says that the house is filled full of smoke. Again, this is a symbol of the presence of God. Because in the Old Testament, the presence of God was symbolized by smoke. If you remember in the Exodus, what went before them during the day? A pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire by night. And then when, when, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, what descended upon the mountain? A cloud of smoke, right? And then when, when they set up the tabernacle at the different locations, when God would then would come to meet with Moses, smoke would then rest upon the tabernacle, signifying his presence there. And so the temple is filled with the presence of God and filled with the glory of God. And Isaiah is completely taken aback and overwhelmed by what he sees. And, and notice that he describes These otherworldly creatures, he says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. As we talked about in our class, the seraphim were designed, and they were created by God himself to be in his presence perpetually, serving him. And they were perfect and sinless. But even they... Even they, as special as they are, could not look upon the glory of God and survive. That's why they covered their face. God's glory is awe-inspiring and terrifying. I mean, look at what Isaiah says. Woe is me. Literally what he says, I'm undone. Like, I'm going to die, is really what his fear was. This was not, Jesus, I love you. You're my boyfriend. This This is like... I just saw the glory of God and I, have nothing, I can do nothing else except fall on my face and have, pray that he has mercy on me. 
And not only did he cover their, they cover their face, but they covered their feet. This is an act of humility, right, before God. And, and, but the most striking thing of this entire scene, of all of this, right, the most striking thing about the scene and about the seraphim is how they worship God. They cried out in such a loud voice that it shook the foundation of the temple. They cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of their glory. Now, believe me, I love modern music. I even love a lot of the contemporary Christian stuff. But, like, when you look at the worship here, this isn't, like, them explaining to God how they feel about him. They're declaring the truth about God. They're shouting one of the most important truths about God, that he is holy, holy, holy. Now, if you were at the theology class, you would understand that the repetition of this word holy is super important because these angels, what they're declaring is simply that God is the most absolute holiest possible thing in in all existence. He is completely, he is totally holy. They're declaring that God is, is holier than anything else. He is, in fact, is the very definition of what it means to be holy. And, and, and so what they're declaring here is important because unless you understand this, you're really not going to fully embrace who God is and you're really not going to understand then what he has to say about things like marriage. When we say that God is completely holy, what we're saying is he is completely set apart. That's what it literally means to be set apart. It means that he is completely other than you. That he's completely different. Which means God, by definition, is not like us. Right? This is one of those things I think that we really struggle to relate to. God is not like us. This is a truth that we must absolutely understand. God is not like us. We might be like him dimly because we have been created in his image to reflect him. But he's not like us. And, 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 and that means God, because he's not like us, does not reason, and does not think the way that we think. One of the problems that we face here, I think, in Western culture, and especially in American Christianity, is that we just have this tendency to impose upon God our own way of thinking. There's just something natural in us that thinks that God must think and feel the same way about things that we do. That's why you hear people say things like, I, think, I don't think God would be like this, or I don't think God would be like that, or I think that God's this way, or I think God's that way. Right? Have you heard this before? I don't think a loving God would send people to hell. Right? I don't think that a good God would allow bad things to happen to people if he were actually sovereign. I don't think that he cares about who you love as long as you're faithful. I, I, I don't think that God cares about your religion. He just cares about how you treat other people. Have you heard that before? It's really popular nowadays, by the way. Over and over and over again, people will begin with what they think is right or wrong or good or bad, and then they will take that and impose that upon God as if that's the way his, he thinks and reasons, as if he's like them. That's making God in our own image, actually. That's the fallacy of, of what's called man-centered theology. You start with man, and then you try to reason your way up to God. You start with yourself and the way that you think, and then you make God in your own image. And people believe that that is how God must be like. But, but the truth is, God doesn't think the way that we do. He doesn't reason the way that we do. 
Let me show you. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 55, God says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And if that wasn't enough to convince you, then he says, he makes it really clear, he says, For as the hot heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says very clearly in his word, I do not think like you do. I do not act like you do. I do not reason the way that you do. I am different than you. Let's put it in perspective. The universe, the part that that can be measured, that that, that they say that is the known universe, is 93 billion, billion light years across. And God is greater than all of that. And God created every bit of that. And God knows every single part of that down to the tiniest conceivable particle. Down to the tiniest little degree, he knows every possible thing there is to know about the universe. Isaiah says in in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is, look at this, none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. God is not like you and I. He is completely, completely holy. You cannot even begin to imagine what a light year is. By the way, 168,000 miles per second times 60 seconds times 60 minutes times 24 hours times 365 uh, days in a year, not counting the leap year part of it. That's the distance that light travels in a year. You can't even like think in those terms. You can't even relate to the speed of light. You can't even understand that at the quantum level, the smallest possible level that we can that, that they can even think about and measure, that time actually kind of disappears. It doesn't even make any sense anymore. Like time is not even a thing, right? But God d- designed and created and developed and all of that by his wisdom and his creativity, which means then God himself and his wisdom and what he knows and the way that he thinks is infinitely more than you can possibly ever understand or relate to, we must be careful not to then try to impose our way of thinking upon him because he is not like us. He is infinite. We are finite. We are limited in our understanding. He knows everything. We are limited in power, even though some people are pretty powerful, still have limitations. He is all-powerful. We're limited still by time and space. Can't figure out how to be in two places at once yet. But God is simultaneously outside of the universe and all the way in the universe, ever-present. So we must be careful as we begin to think through important issues of truth like marriage and divorce because the tendency for us is to build our understanding of those things on our view of God. And we tend to build, and I say we because I'm the same way, We tend to build our view of God based on us and who we are and how we think and how we feel. But the truth is, that's not who God is. God is infinite, and he is eternal, and he is sovereign, and he's the triune God of the universe. Wrap your head around that one. He's triune. And there's nothing outside of him, and there's there's no other like him, and he's far above us and far and away different from us. He is truly holy, holy, holy. Now, what's the point? The point is, is that God is so holy and so different from us that, that, that we could never even know him at all 
or what he wants or what he expects out of us unless he, by his grace, reveals it to us. He's so different from us, we couldn't even possibly even know him. That's the thing we need to come to terms with. We know what we know about God because he, by his grace, has decided to show himself to us. Everything we know and understand about God is because he's decided to reveal it to us by his grace. You see, we cannot reason our way to God. It's just impossible. You cannot, you know, get to God simply by philosophy. You cannot experiment your way to God. An ant is more likely to reason his way to understanding all of humanity than we are to reason our way to God. The only way that we can know him is for God to reveal himself to us. And again, we talked about this in our theology class. God has revealed himself to us in two important ways. He's revealed himself to us in creation, which is what we call general revelation. Big theological term. And he's revealed himself to us through his written word, the Bible, which is called special revelation. And there's, and there's a whole lot we can say about this subject if we had more time, but we don't. But suffice it to say, creation itself is enough to reveal to mankind the fact that God actually exists and that he is powerful and that he is worth our worship and deserving of our thanksgiving. But it's not enough for us to know him and have a relationship with him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 very quickly, beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Let that sink in. It's plain to them. Because God has, what? Shown it to them. Very clear. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, and animals, and creeping things. They, tra- they trade this image of the holy and righteous God for a God that they can wrap their head around and understand. The truth is very clear. Everyone knows God exists. Everyone does. There are no atheists. None. Zero. I actually had talked to a person who claimed to be an atheist this week, and I said, oh, here's what I know. Is you're, you're, you, don't really, you aren't really an atheist. You do believe in God. You're just suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And he gets mad. He says, how can you possibly say that to me? I said, it's really easy. He says, what if I told you? I'm telling you, I know for a fact that I don't believe in God. I said, here's my choice. I can believe you, or I can believe the holy and righteous and unchanging God. Right? So who am I going to pick? I'm picking him. Sorry. You lose. God reveals himself to us in creation. But the problem is that creation only reveals enough about God to condemn us, not enough to save us. It's enough to make us accountable to him, but not enough to save us. We need something more, special revelation, and that's what the scriptures are. Scripture is the direct, clear revelation of God himself and his nature and his plan to us. It is As Paul says, theanoustos, it is the very breath of God, the very word of God. By the way, if you want to know a little bit more about theanoustos, then talk to David Larson. Um, He's pretty familiar with the Greek and kind of can tell you exactly what that means. This word is sufficient and is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ is what Paul says. The scriptures are God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word. 
Our statement of faith actually says this. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme center by which old human conduct, creeds, and notice this, religious opinions should be tried. God's revealed word is the standard by which we measure everything else. It is the scales on which we weigh everything else, including our views of marriage and divorce. And what we need to understand is that because the scriptures are the word of God, we must seek to read them and understand them in the spirit and in the context in which God wrote them because they are the expression of who he is and what his will is to us. Which means we must understand the scriptures and what they meant when they were written down. See, it's not simply good enough for us to take the Bible here and then gather up a bunch of scriptures and then try to arrange them and interpret them to fit our preconceived ideas as so many people do. There's a lot of that that happens in the world around us. It's not enough for us to take hard passages of scripture like this one you know, and just kind of dismiss them and maybe even ignore them because you know, times have changed or culture has changed. It's not, we can't do that. We must approach the scriptures with great care and seek to understand what God is actually saying, not what we think he's saying and not what we're hoping that he's saying. We must be willing to come to the scriptures and humble ourselves and say, Lord, conform me to your word, not the other way around. We must seek to study the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and ask God to open our eyes to the truth. We must seek to the best of our abilities to set aside the outside things that influence us. And what that means is we just need to get to that place where we essentially tell the the rest of the world and everything else to shut up. We we, we need to set aside what popular culture is saying. We we have to do that. We must set aside what, what modern Postmodern philosophy is telling us, which isn't much. We must set aside what, what Hollywood is absolutely telling us. If there is any group of people that are getting things wrong, we must set aside what the media is saying. We must set aside what unbelievers around us are saying. And sometimes we need to even say, set aside what some people who claim to be Christians are saying. And we even need to set aside our own preconceived ideas and our own personal feelings about some things. We must set aside everything else that distorts our understanding of what God is actually saying. And we must begin with the understanding that God is completely holy, righteous, and just. And he has loved us enough to give us his written word so that we can know him and know what he expects of us and know what he is saying about important issues like like marriage and divorce. We must commit ourselves to going where the scriptures lead Even if it leads us into difficult and uncomfortable places, we are called to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Christ. And that includes following him where he leads through his word. And that's where we're going to go over the next couple weeks. We're going to look at this, what Jesus is saying here in this context, and we're going to unpack the implications of what he's saying here so that we can conform our lives to the truth and then actually follow where he's going, right? And so my encouragement is to be here for the next few weeks because, again, it's all going to be related. Now, let me, let me just say this. If you're, not a, if you're not someone who is a believer 
And I mean that you haven't actually made a profession of faith or you've not actually turned to Christ in faith. Or maybe you thought you did, but you actually your life hasn't changed. If you're, if you're an unbeliever, okay, I want you to understand the chances are that these conversations that we're going to have over the next couple of weeks might not make sense to you completely. Um, in fact, some of what we say for some people might even be offensive. And, and I want you to understand our aim, my aim, is never to offend people. That is not my goal. That's not what I'm shooting for. All right? Our aim is to lovingly tell the truth. I believe that the most loving thing that a person can do is to tell you the truth. And I believe that we as Christians must always, always, always tell the truth, but to do so in love and with great care. We must be gracious toward everyone, including those who do not know God and those who just simply don't understand. And so if you don't understand or you find yourself offended or upset by something, what we're going to ask is just be patient with us. Because the truth of the gospel right, and the truth of God's word simply just won't make sense to unbelievers. Even Paul, has, even Paul says that the gospel is offensive to those who don't know Christ. So understand, my goal is, is to clearly explain the word of God, not purposefully hurt people's feelings, but to clearly and lovingly tell the truth. Now, on the other hand, if you are not a believer, or maybe you are a believer, if something that we say upsets you or offends you, maybe you're experiencing that, and maybe you're feeling that, because God the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin, because he's calling you to trust in him. And I want you to know, if you're a Christian, you know exactly what that's like. I went to G3, and Paul Washer preached the message, and at the end of that, that message, you know, he's talking about the responsibility of pastors. I was bawling my eyes out because I was convicted of what I need to grow to be, you know, that where I'm not yet. So conviction is a normal part of the, of the process. But understand, that the Holy Spirit's convicting you. He's calling you to repent and believe the gospel. Right? We need to realize that's what the gospel is. The gospel is this, that God, right, the God that we see in this picture of Isaiah, this high and lifted up glorious God, where the, the seraphim are shouting, holy, 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 the God that Isaiah looks upon and says, woe is me, that God, who is completely righteous and just, that God is also loving and gracious and kind and personal, and he desires a relationship with you. Let that sink in. And that God, by his grace, made a way for that to happen. You see, you were created in the image of God because you were created to be in an intimate, up-close, personal relationship with God. That's why you were made. But because of sin, that relationship has been destroyed and severed. And now there's a chasm between you and God that you, on your own, cannot ever overcome. And what's worse is not only separated from God, but our sin is outright rebellion against God, which means we're his enemies. And as such, we're under his condemnation and his wrath. And, and if we meet him in our sin, then he's going to give us exactly what we deserve. You understand that? So when people, said, when people say, I can't imagine a loving God sending people to hell, that's exactly what we deserve. And so when we meet him in our sins, we're going to get what we deserve, which is his justice. But... God, for some reason, according to the counsel of his own will, according to his grace and his mercy, made a way to erase this chasm 
and to draw sinners like us to himself. Back into a relationship that we were created for. As the scriptures say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have in that moment eternal life. And what that means is Jesus came into the world, took on a full human nature and lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and fulfilled a law that you couldn't fulfill. And then upon the cross, he took upon himself the punishment that you couldn't bear and survive. And on the cross, you have to understand this, on the cross, he takes all of your sin, past, present, and future, and then in return, gives to you his righteousness. So now that you have his righteousness, and now you can stand unafraid in front of that holy, holy, holy God. He died on the cross, bearing the full wrath of God that you deserve. And then he was, he was buried and then was resurrected three days later, proving that his promises are sure, that if you will trust in him, he will save you from your sin. And now he has ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all of those who have trusted in him. And he says, all you need to do for that gospel to be yours and for you to have eternal life is to repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your old life and put your faith and your trust and all of your hope on Christ alone and follow him. Right? Only then, only then, will what he says then for important things like life and marriage and finances and divorce and all the other things, only then will all that make sense. But even then, our hope rests solely on the finished work of the cross. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.